over 52 gigawatts of cumulative solar capacity out of 78 gigawatts of total solar in the U.S. is in California and Texas. There's really no surprise why battery storage is so active in these two states because the intermittency of solar and wind creates this challenge where battery storage seems to fit very well. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about the best business models for energy storage. As more intermittent renewables take over a larger slice of our portfolio, storage will be more critical for ensuring reliability. But which of these several services that storage technologies provide actually make money? The biggest potential money maker is arbitrage, charging the batteries when energy prices are cheap and discharging when prices reach their peak. One of my panelists discusses a duck curve where demand peaks in the evenings just after solar drops off. But the issue is that this period only lasts an hour or two, not half the day. My guess suggests that long-term storage for arbitration might become more lucrative in the future, but we're not there yet. The other, more complex business models are commonly called ancillary services. The two most common are frequency response, or maintaining 60 hertz across the grid, and spinning reserves, which are backup generation running just in case the largest generator goes offline. This basket of services is great for storage because most of these technologies, like lithium-ion batteries, can ramp up in milliseconds rather than, say, a natural gas plant, which could take several minutes. My guest and I spend a lot of time talking about Texas and California. Granted, there's a lot of states out there, but as my guest suggests in the cold open, these two states are likely bellwethers for what lies in the future for the rest of us. In both states, particularly California, there is so much renewable capacity, energy has to often be curtailed or cut off from the grid. One of the questions we ask is, is this a lucrative problem storage can solve, or say transmission? It was an excellent opportunity to learn a lot more about what models work best for the battery business. My guests today are Juan Ortega from Inveris, Mark Skirlib from EY Parthenon, and Andrew Chen at CIT Group. They joined me last month for a panel held at the PowerGen International Conference in Orlando. Juan and Mark tackled Texas and California respectively, while Andrew gave insights into just who banks are financing. You may have seen one of my posts on social media just after the conference. It was Mardi Gras, and I had a little snafu tossing some beads out into the crowd. I hope you enjoy my panel on Energy Storage Financials, what model makes the most sense. All right, everybody. <laughs> so it's Tuesday, and being a Louisiana native, I want to wish everyone Mardi Gras, or as everyone else calls it, Tuesday. But you know, if only there were some beads to make this a little bit more festive. I forgot them at the house. Oh, wait, no, I didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> no one has to do anything for the beads. Laissez les bon temps Oh, sorry, heads up. I should have said heads up. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, my, I am, I am sorry. <laughs> and by the way, my name is Juan Ortega, if uh, you need to... <laughs> uh, just kidding, everybody. Okay. <laughs> 
Good afternoon. My name is Jay Downhower. I'm the host of the Energy Cast podcast, now in its sixth year. I'll admit anyone who's ever listened to the podcast I do it has a really outsized focus on energy storage. I often call it the energy industry within the energy industry. It's so dynamic, filled with so many technologies, many we're focusing on today, filled with a number of business models, arbitration, spinning and non-spinning reserves, just to name a few. We want to attempt to simplify this whole market here with the energy storage and see what's happening in some of our biggest energy markets. And we've got some great examples we're going to be discussing today. We also want to take a step back and examine what technologies might be the best for these purposes. So what we're going to do is have each of our panelists do a little spiel, and then we'll ask some questions and try to get as many audience questions as we can do. Our guests are Dr. Juan Ortega, Senior Intelligence Associate with Inveris, Mark Schlurry, Managing Director at Ernst & Young Parthenon, <laughs> that's on the end, and then Andrew Chin, Managing Director of CIT Group, also known as First Citizens Bank, he's going to be giving more of the 10,000 foot level, talking a little bit more about what kind of projects they're financing. So Juan, yeah. tell us a little bit about what's going on in ERCOT. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, well, my name is Juan Artela. I'm with Enveris. I'm going to give you a brief summary of a report we put out about a year ago when we analyzed how is energy storage operating in ERCOT? What are they doing? Where are they getting their money from? And, and how we see those markets evolving as more storage comes, right? So this is showing the strategies that batteries used last year. As you can see here, mainly energy storage was is or was focused on ancillary services, right? Like the blue line is arbitrage. So each column is an asset. Only one of the assets is fully doing arbitrage, while the rest are mainly doing ancillary services, either regulation up or down or responsive reserve or non-spinning or a combination, right? So energy storage, this is a typical offer curve where energy storage, it's currently acting as a price taker. As you can see here, the orange dots would be storage, while the mainly pink are gas, mainly gas is setting the price, right? But the ancillary markets are getting saturated with so much storage coming online in the next couple of years. These markets are going to be saturated by energy storage. So storage is going to have enough capacity to cover all of the services. Here, each line, it's the cumulative capacity for the ancillary services and then the bars or the area the capacity for storage that's operating under construction and the storage that has some interconnection agreement already so we expect by summer next year june 24 we expect to have enough capacity to cover all of the ancillary services in erica right the issue here is that we don't need all 14,000 megawatts to be operational for these markets to crash if storage continues to act as a price taker, right? For example, here, 500 megawatt increase in storage capacity bidding as, as a price taker would drop the price from the $20 that's clearing now, it would drop it to maybe $5, making it not economical, even for storage, if this tendency of being a price taker continues. So we think that storage needs to change their strategy from being a price taker and just taking those higher prices from being set by gas to changing to a price maker, right? So we did a calculation on what would they bid? If it's not zero or like just any low number, what would they bid so they can make a profit and cover their operational cost. So using the probability of deployment for each service and the charging cost, we came up with like a marginal cost calculation for energy storage. And we came up with a forecast based on the generation mix for each service and the price. The white line is our forecast where we predict a downward tendency. And that gray line, those are the actuals, right? So we did this forecast last year and we expect these prices to settle around $5. I think this is 
regulation down service. As more storage comes in, we calculated that the market prices are going to settle around $5 based on this. So the future storage strategies, we see that if storage will only focus on doing reserve, or arbitrage, they would get a lower IRR than if they combine different services. Like, for example, regulation up and down, they could get like 41% IRR. In this new market, with those prices settled at our forecasted levels, and then the combination strategy would be doing one arbitrage cycle a day and the rest of the time just doing reserve. We calculate a return of investment of 36%. So this is just a brief summary. We have three reports on aircode storage. I'll be happy to share with you and like, talk to you about it. And that's all I have for you. All right. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Now we have Mark with Ernst & Young. Do we say Ernst & Young parking or we say EY? Ah, uh, it's my dad's sister. All right. EY. <laughs> Make sure we're current. No, thank you. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Jay had asked me to talk a little bit about the California market. Very hard to follow your lead on that. If you look at the California electric generation market over the last 11 years or so, but you'll see it's relatively flat, maybe even a tiny bit declining, depending on how you look at it. But the amazing thing is you see the stacked bars here, which basically show the source of generation. But when you look at the line chart here, this is really just a renewable part. And the amazing thing about California is that it went from 15% all the way to the 35 here in you know 11 years. The interesting question for us today is, well, what does that really mean in terms of how the market operates? And a couple of thoughts on that. Many people talk about the duck curve in California. And you'll actually see basically how the net load in the ISO is actually changing hour by hour on an average April day. And, you know, we measured this data over four years and you'll see the various lines there. The interesting thing is that when you imagine the sun, right, because a lot of the renewable energy is coming from the sun, the sun is going the other way, right? The sun is coming up and it's going to peak up here and it's going to go down. When we don't need a lot of energy is exactly when we're getting a lot of it. And you see what the result is of that, a lot of it is being curtailed. So you'll see the curtailment of the generation availability. The important thing that we wanted to know is like, well, is it getting worse? A lot more curtailment of the renewable production year over year. And you'll see at the peak, 10% of it is actually being curtailed. And it's kind of sad for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, people spend a lot of money on renewables, but also there is a societal impact. Right. And we hear more and more about ESG and ESG really being very important for investors, but also really all the carbon that is generated because we're dealing with this. So what's being done about it? Well, fortunately, people smarter, way, way smarter than me are actually thinking about this. And this is coming from the California ISO. It's talking about, well, what options are there for curtailment? And the one that we're going to talk about here in this panel today is obviously the storage, Jay. That's what you had come up with. There are more presentations on some of these other curtailment solutions. There's a couple of my colleagues talking about electric vehicles, demand response. There's a lot more to hear about. For California in particular, energy storage has been an absolute blockbuster sale. Back in just two and a half years ago, we only had 172 megawatt capacity for energy storage. That has, in just two years, grown to the 4,600 and something. And we believe that early next decade, 2031. I'm actually kind of thinking that we're going to be even above this number. But then, of course, the amazing thing here, 2040, it would almost be tenfold of what we had at the end of last year. And that really makes sense when you look at how California is planning to generate their electricity going forward by 2040. They want to be all carbon free. 
by 2040. And then, of course, because the wind doesn't blow all the time, the sun doesn't shine all the time, almost one third of it is battery energy storage. Couple of examples of things that have happened. One that happened last year in April, long way coming, is that PG&E put a ton of Tesla banks out onto a retired plant. And the huge advantage for that was, of course, they already had the grid integration there. They had the grid interconnection. There is also, and there's a little bit of a shout out to not so much battery energy storage, but longer term energy storage, the hydrogen project that is going on with Energy Vault. And then a couple that didn't make it on the slide here. Last Friday, there was an announcement that one of the solar plants in the Mojave Desert is actually going to be retrofitted as a solar battery energy plant. So they're going to take out everything that was actually built there almost 30 years ago and replace it with new solar that have battery backup. And then there was just another one that came out where PG&E is actually partnering with Sunrun to create microgrids that basically take the electricity from up to 7,500 residential homes to, to use the solar power that's currently being curtailed. That would be stored at residential people's houses. And then between the hours of 7 and 10 at night, that would actually be fed back into the grid. So not all of us are from California. I'm actually out of Pennsylvania. So I was like, well, what's the deal? Why do I have to worry about it, right? It's not my problem. Well, when you look at what the various states are setting as goals, you'll realize that California maybe is the front runner because they have so much renewable energy generation right now, but it will come to a state near us very quickly. And we're going to be dealing with similar issues going forward. And so I think we can learn from California. We can see what's working, what's not working. And Jay, that's probably the wisdom why you pick California, because at least half of you are thinking now, well, how are we going to pay for all of this? And so a couple of programs that have come out, there is IIJA that came out a year and a half ago. And then there is IRA. The top three opportunities are grants that are available through IIJA. A lot of these you would actually have to put out a request for funding already. So it's unless you are part of the companies that have already put out their request, probably can't get there. But what's exciting here is the tax credits. And as with all of the stuff, you need to read the fine print here. You get 6% tax credit if you do not pay minimum wage. If you do pay minimum wage and you follow apprenticeship rules, you're getting a 30% investment tax credit on your standalone energy storage projects. And that can only grow if you actually work in an area that is somewhat disadvantaged. So that's some ways to pay for it, but I think it's a pretty interesting investment already standalone. So that's all I have for now. And Jay, back to you. Thank you. To Cal ISO's credit, they really do put their information about the renewable curtailments on Front Street. If anyone's interested, they put out a monthly renewables performance report. That's what it's called. And that shares basically every month how much was curtailed wind and solar. And so I think there's a phenomenal opportunity there to eat up all that curtailed energy. Andrew? Thank you. I don't have any slides. It requires a lot of unnecessary approvals in the banking world, but I will tie in some of what Juan and also Mark discussed on the financing basis. So I've been in power project financing with CIT, First Citizens Bank, for about 15 years. When we initially financed a lot of these power plants, I think you can see industry-wide, I started out financing coal-fired plants back in the late 90s, right? And then we did our first wave of merchant gas-fired, 100% merchant gas-fired financings, which didn't turn out too well back in the early 2000s. And then we moved into financing these wind projects with PTCs and cash grants. I could probably take credit for maybe doing the last wind financing in Puerto Rico, which turned out pretty well. It was probably one of our best finance projects until Hurricane Maria took it out. <laughs> I don't remember what year, but it was right 
about two months before the recapture period ended. And finally, we go from the wind financings to now we're doing solar within the last 10 years. And then now in the last five years, we've also kind of moved on to battery storage. So overall, we have about 25 years of energy power project financing experience. So I'll just put a real quick plug for CIT and for citizens. Our bank really does pride ourselves as being at the forefront of financing newer areas in energy space. When we started our group probably about 15 years ago, we were financing warehouse supply loans for wind turbines. And then we moved into the solar financings because you know, all these states started requiring noble portfolio standards. PG&E, all the utilities were giving long-term contracts to try to satisfy that. Then the influx of contracts came in so quickly that they filled up all their RPSs that they started shortening the contracts. And as those contracts, the PPA started to shorten, we had to kind of evolve and move into financing solar projects with Merchant Tales. And then finally, battery storage started making noise probably in the last five years. And during that time, a lot of people said we're trying to get into it, but we now have come to the point where we've actually financed the first and probably the last four of our standalone battery storage deals have been 100% merchant battery storage financings. So we're always looking to try to stay ahead of the market just enough so that we can capitalize as an early mover but not too much where the technology really hasn't caught up with the finances. From there, I really want to provide just a broad overview of the energy storage market that Mark and also Juan had kind of shared. In particular, they're talking about ERCOT, Texas, and California. The battery storage capacity in the U.S. currently is about 9.1 gigawatts at the end of 2022. It's expected to double to about 19 gigawatts in 2023, and they hit around 28.4 gigawatts of installed capacity by 2024. So even the next two years, we're looking about another 20 gigawatts coming on into the system. California and Texas, if you look on it, really accounted for. And the reason why it's been so focused on these two states is just look at the renewables build out. Over 52 gigawatts of cumulative solar capacity out of 78 gigawatts of total solar in the U.S., is in California and Texas. The two states alone have 70 million people in population and account for 21% of the U.S. population. Texas and California ranks one and two in renewable energy production year over year. I checked out the last five years, but I think it actually stretches even further, maybe 10 years. This is non-hydro. So if you include hydro, Washington state seems to like sneak itself in between Texas and California on occasion. There's really no surprise why battery storage is so active in these two states because the intermittency of solar and wind creates this challenge where battery storage seems to fit very well. If you look at the financing activity in battery storage, surprisingly, it's evolved quite a bit. It probably is a little bit more quiet. People don't hear about it, but three to five years ago, a lot of talk over standalone battery storage. There's also components where people are financing solar plus storage, but those weren't as prevalent because it didn't qualify for the investment tax credit unless the first electrons actually went to charge a battery and then the rest goes out to the solar system. And that wasn't as efficient. So now we have standalone storage where it makes a lot of sense to finance on its own. And not a lot of debt was deployed early on. It needed these long-term contracts, but it was always very challenging to try to get a contract for batteries because Juan was sharing about the ancillary markets. There wasn't a lot of liquidity in the ancillary markets, and it was really hard to really put in a 10-year contract on something that's like a reserve resource adequacy type product because it was so small. Take a step back. We financed the first 
probably battery storage system about five years ago in Southern California. It was 100% contracted and it was behind the meter and it was basically serving as a peak shaving facility for some buildings in Irvine. After that, we saw the lending market start to get involved and several fully contracted battery storage projects started to come to market and then pricing started to get pushed down because there was very limited amounts of projects that were being financed. So we ultimately moved into financing these 100% merchant battery storage systems. Now, I like to say we're actually smarter than the market, but in reality, we were actually exposed to these fixed shape hedges about two years ago, 2021 Valentine's Day, the Texas snowstorm that hit. I actually lost power for like four days. So so I lived through that. But uh, I would say, I think everything outside of the Texas, they call it snowstorm Uri. It exposed a big situation where merchant battery storage really could thrive in this volatile environment if they were forced to deliver. These fixed shape hedges required delivery and we had these one hour duration batteries and six hour delivery requests at the $9,000 cap price. So it created a huge mismatch that caused a lot of these storage systems to suffer some significant financial issues. And now to date, we've already closed about four of these fully merchant and energy storage financings out of a kind of lessons learned that we feel like there's some value added to these completely 100% merchant where you're not forced to deliver under some sort of a contractual obligation. And we even incorporated in these financings are structural protections, for instance, in the form of higher equity requirements, target debt balance sweeps, and upside sharing sweeps. These elements have actually responded where the market is also seen a little bit more robust today now that they're willing to accept 100% merchant financing versus before. A couple of things Mark had mentioned about the Inflation Reduction Act. So the passage of that back in August was truly a game changer for the energy storage market. It really allowed standalone battery storage systems to be financed because now they qualify for the 30% ITC. Along with that, there were certain bonuses. One of them was domestic content. If 100% of the iron and steel comes from the U.S. and 40% of the batteries are manufactured here, they would qualify for a 10% adder, so it could get up to 40%. And then another 10% adder was if the battery storage system is based in a energy community where it suffered a, a significant job loss to, you know, like these renewables coming into the area and maybe coal jobs or oil and gas jobs were lost. So realistically, these facilities could ultimately qualify for almost a 50% ITC, which is a really big game changer there. And then the other game changing provision in IRA is a transferability provision. This allows companies with taxable income to transfer ITCs and PTCs for cash to other unrelated parties. There's ups and downs to this because for one thing, accelerated depreciation is still not transferable. So there still needs to be some sort of structure in place to monetize the accelerated depreciation. So current tax equity structures like inverted leases and partnership flips will still remain in place because of that. And then the other issue is if you transfer to a entity that doesn't actually deploy an inverted lease or a partnership flip, they won't get the basis step up either for the cost. So then they lose out on a higher cost basis to be able to monetize. So overall, IRA provides a lot of optimism and with the allowance of this ITC for energy storage projects and also with the transferability provisions really opens the door to a lot of new investors in the place because of the monetization of these tax credits. So with that, I want to hand it back to Jay and we can start Q&A. Start that Q&A. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, I'm going to try not to hog all the questions, but I'm going to ask one question for each of our panelists, and then we're going to just let fly. First one, Andrew, we spoke before about merchant power versus PPA agreements. Obviously, the project with a PPA is far more easy to finance because it's got a customer. Say we want to test the limits of that theory. Are there examples of projects with a PPA in a lending institution that they still won't finance? You know, there's a lot of battery <laughs> companies out there with an interesting technology that has almost unlimited cycles, and they're having to compete against lithium-ion not getting the lending. So what's some there, upper limits to that? There's definitely technology challenges. I think every financing to date has been lithium-ion. I think in the previous panel, they were discussing flow batteries, and that was pretty interesting. I was going to have a further conversation with that gentleman on flow batteries and potential financings. But really, until the independent engineers, people sign off on technology, the companies that are manufacturing the technology will have to also show the financial wherewithal to stand for a warranty that might be 20 plus years. And that was how even solar really came about was after independent engineers started to say, oh, the technology looks like it'll be around for 20 years, degrades to about 80%. And, you know, they can warranty that. And you look at these companies, I mean, most of them are Chinese companies. So financially, we're a little bit questionable. But overall, we were thinking if, if it's not them, it's nobody else. And I think we looked at it and said, I think that does work. So I think the, to your point, I think the financing of you could have a PPA, but in order to finance it, you really need to have a buy-in from the engineering side. Yeah. And I've had a lot of conversations with being in Charlotte. I know a lot of people in the banking side. I've talked to a couple of banks. And that's a conversation that I've had with several of them. It's like, okay, when are you going to be able to sign off on a lot of these newer technologies out there? It's a really interesting discussion. I think we're going to see hopefully a lot more movement over the next couple of years. Mark, we talk a lot about the energy storage business cases I mentioned in my introduction, but it seems like California's issues are mainly how to eat all that oversupply of curtailments. And how would you describe that business model? Do we call it reverse arbitrage? What's the earning potential for investors in the golden state? I mean, all that excess energy out there. Yeah, well, I'm not going to come up with the catchiest phrase or, or, or how to do it. But I mean, you're absolutely right. The opportunity is great. Just like I was saying, the load curve and the production are almost exactly opposite, right? A lot of free electricity available in the market that you just need to capture and then really sell it when the prices are much higher in the evening. And that's really what the example that I didn't have in the slide but I mentioned the PG&E partnership with Sunrun that's really targeting is to make use of the infrastructure that's already in place in residential homes and harvest that during the sunshine and bring it into the grid as the prices go up in the evening. Andrew, you mentioned a lot of the financing opportunities that are there. You may recall in the last slide that I had on the IRA, the amazing tax credit opportunities there. So like you said earlier with the forecast, I would be surprised if there weren't not just developers, I mean, market players in general, right? Yeah. And really take advantage. And I really don't know what to call the business model. <laughs> I will think about it some more and I will share with the group if I can come up with some catchy name, unless somebody else has an idea. <laughs> Works for the entire audience, too. Uh, one, ERCOT. We painted a picture where ERCOT, you said the market is ancillary services. Now we're seeing a pivot to arbitrage, maybe for a finite amount of time until that market's satisfied. But how much of an emphasis do you expect on long duration storage for energy arbitrage? And I've heard this a lot, this idea that you only have a couple of hours in the day to really make hay about that arbitrage number. It's not half of the day, it's two or three hours. What about long duration storage and arbitrage in ERCOT, or is it just short term? I think long duration 
does not make sense right now as it is because as you mentioned that window of opportunity is really short you would only be using like three or four hours out of your 100 hour storage right and the rest would be just sitting there basically right where i think it makes sense to have that longer duration is so you can offer more ancillary services like spinning reserve or non-spinning reserve and then just capture that two or three hour highest arbitrage opportunity. That's the way I see it playing out. There's a lot of companies investing and really betting on long-term storage. I don't see the volatility being there for them to make economic sense yet. Maybe with more renewables, more variability, gas peakers being pushed out and like having less capacity factors, maybe that's going to increase volatility. But as it is right now, I don't think it makes sense. Yeah, that was a little bit of a wake up for me is that arbitrage, you're only talking about a couple of hours where you can really play the market that way. The exception is, you know, extreme weather in the middle of a long Texas summer. I'm sure there's several days like that, but the normal course of business, right? Right. Or a storm, like you were saying, right? Like if a long duration battery would have been there, it would have been tons of money, right? Like it would have been paid off in just like that one day or two days. But if it's like normal operation, it's questionable. (laughs) That's a good point. Okay. Anybody have any questions at this point? Right there. How is permitting risk figuring into the store projects and finding the projects? Yeah, lenders, we don't take permitting risk. We have done early stage type financings, like DevCo type financings, but those really require like not just financing one project, it would be requiring an entire pipeline. So in order to take some sort of permitting risk, it would require almost like a large corporate entity to backstop that type of financing. Yeah, I think we usually start the financing at NTP. Yeah. So an interesting one is, is they're kind of doing arbitrage, but by bidding to regulation. So by timing the regulation up and down, they're charging or discharging. So it's pretty much like double dipping, right? So you're getting paid to charge and then you're getting paid to discharge as well. So they're playing around with their state of charge by timing these arbitrage opportunities through regulation. Yeah. All right. Two questions for the one on your Okay, so the first question was, what about seasonal arbitrage, not daily arbitrage, right? Yeah, I was talking about like at a unit level, right? Like if you own one standalone long duration battery or hydrogen storage or like any technology, we don't see the spread either daily or seasonally. We don't see the spread being there for long durations, right? Like you can capture that highest spread for two or three hours, right? But then the following hours, that spread is going to be lower. And it gets lower the longer your battery is. And the longer your duration, the more expensive your battery is as well. So that's why we think the economics, they're not there yet. We didn't study Form Energy. Are you familiar with them? They're long duration storage. They're doing iron air. They claim to have $20 per kilowatt hour cost for 100 hours, 10 megawatts, 100 hours. And we just did some quick math, like how much do you need to cycle this battery and what spreads can you get? And yeah, we see that you need to pretty much cycle it like every hour of the month you would have to be either charging or discharging to be capturing this like a 10% IRR at least and not everywhere we feel that MISO doesn't get there like at all and then California gets there at two cycles per month or so there is some ways that this is economical but you could achieve the same performance like a much smaller battery you don't need your 100 hours you could be doing like a maybe 24 hour battery or something to get that same return that what our model is showing. I'll be happy to discuss it further. And this, again, is just looking at one unit, right? Like what makes sense for this one standalone unit? Actually, just to follow up on that, so in the electric market, so I'm a single IP, and I'm just waiting to fit into the energy market. And for like that market, it only makes sense if I'm an integrated portfolio. 
so I can offset some of my solar cabins. Right. And I think I hit on my storage in it, so I'll save a lot of batteries. And on the net base of the portfolio, the bottom All right, like so combined. Yeah. yeah. So it won't work in as a standalone. Yeah. Well, just one other thought because we mentioned long duration energy storage, right? And I think I agree with you, Juan, that maybe right now it's not really what's lucrative. But as a society, I think it's very clear that that's where we're moving to in terms of maybe not just long duration energy storage, but long duration renewable energy storage, right? And that's where we see a lot of grants coming out of the IIJA because we know that, yes, it's not feasible right now. We can make it so that it's attractive from a margin perspective, but we know that's where we need to go if you want to decarbonize. And so we're putting those incentives out so that the market will actually respond and start building capacity. I just didn't want that to be lost in the discussion. Yeah. 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 So if more variability comes, then for yeah. sure, right? Like those yeah. spreads are going to be wider for longer. So then it might make sense then. Yeah. Yeah. There was a second question on like what happens when gas is no longer in the price setting and right? no longer foam possible Yeah, yeah. So that's the base of the analysis we did, right? Right now most of the storage assets are just bidding zero, right? Like just whatever, just to clear the market and get that higher price that gas is setting. So we see a change there. They're gonna stop bidding zero and they're gonna start bidding their actual marginal cost if you wanna call it, right? It depends on like how often you're being deployed and what's the cost of charging, like your average cost of cost of charging uh, and how often you're being deployed. And we added a 10% IRR calculation, right? So with those three components, you can calculate a marginal cost for storage when they become the price setters. We think that's where they're going to settle at. Guys, we've talked so much about the deregulated markets, you know, ERCOT in California. Andrew, I think we talked a little bit in New York as well. What about the regulated markets? What about PJM? What about MISO and storage? And I think there's been some peculiarities with PJM, for instance. Someone had mentioned something about frequency. Yeah, I think there's a mismatch with how PJM wants the frequency to be a longer duration. So there hasn't been much of a build out in energy storage in the PJM market just on that basis, because I think the batteries right now are very short duration. And PJM wants them like over 15 minutes or something like that. I think that was a mark. I don't I don't have all the specifics, but that was the gist of it was if your battery has to deploy for more than 15 minutes, then it doesn't make it as economic. And then what do we know about those big regulated markets as far as long-term versus short-term? What do we see in indications of there? <laughs> Just all kind of short-term, medium-term, right? So when I think longer-term, right, I think all of these markets need to realize that, yes, maybe the mechanisms aren't set in that way right now, but when you think about it strategically, we need to get those incentives in place over time, right? Because that is really what we have made very clear as a country. That's where we're going. In the regulated markets, you know, regulators in general don't mean to insult anyone, but it takes a little bit of time to get it right, right? And you want to make sure that you don't set something and then have to reverse it. So there is always going to be a little bit of a delay until the right regulatory mechanisms are there. But I have no doubt that all of the states that we had up earlier that are actually already made the renewable pledges for 2040 2045, 2050 are going to react in some way with their regulatory constructs into how they're going to react to it over time. So we may not see it right now, but definitely going to see it over future. Right. Mark, you know, one of the things about the California market you alluded to was first goes California, so goes the rest of the country, right? Like, is this a preview of what we're expecting all over the country? But with the issue of 
curtailments, I always figure it's one of two things, right? You either store it or you wheel it out somewhere. You know, you add more transmission. It seems California's not too interested in building a whole lot more transmission out. But is that the same solution that we would see elsewhere in the country? You know, if we're going to be building out all this extra renewable energy, and this is for everybody, do you think we can solve a lot of this by just transmission? Love to hear from you guys, but I think it's a combination. And I've seen a lot of reports in the past that say we need a lot more transmission. And that's probably true that there will be more transmission. I also see that there is going to be a lot more storage. And I think over the long period, it's short-term and long-term storage that will all come to fruition. And in a lot of ways, you know, when we're looking at those longer time periods now, like 2045, 2050, well, we almost need to start permitting today for some of this. We're putting that motion in place now. And a lot of it, and now I sound like a broken record with I. But I think on a federal level, we're starting to realize what needs to happen in order to really move our power power generation capacity into that area. I don't know. What do you guys think? Similarly, I think it does require probably both investments in the transmission as well as energy storage. I mean, looking at California and Texas combined, when we did a lot of the solar financings early on, being contracted made it very, very easy. But with all the challenges now, when we talk about curtailment, it really became a big issue with several of our solar projects that in California where couldn't deploy because of curtailment issues. And now they're talking about building battery storage systems right next to it to accommodate them. We had the same issue in West Texas where we financed a lot of the solar and the wind build out. And same thing, you know, all the basis that occurred from curtailment was so significant that now we're actually kind of pulling a little bit back in some of those financings because there's such a big mismatch between the price of where the generating load is and where the delivery point is or settlement point on the hedges or the PPA. So it's definitely if you had battery storage or better transmission, that would solve it. But again, there's a huge investment in kind of both areas. Uh, in the re- the guy pegged with the beads. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, thank you. Sorry. My name is Kirin I'm from Mozambique, Africa. And I saw the sub-energy storage connection. What models to make the sense? I thought they were going to hear something that they got my country. In my country, more than 70% of people doesn't have energy. We have something related to Yeah, I'll repeat that if I might. So huge issue. I talk about this on the podcast a lot. Like what about the countries that really do need energy? And a lot of the countries that I think are maybe doing this the first time so they can do it right the first time. And to the point of the title of the panel, which model makes the most sense? He's come from Mozambique. What energy storage model would make the best sense for sub-Saharan African country, right? It's a big question. <laughs> it's a very big question. I kind of feel the pain. And of course, the answer is going to be like, it depends, right? It depends a lot on where we are. And like you're saying, right, the US is a much different economy, a much different country than Mozambique. And geographically, although we have a ton of geographies in this country, you know, I would tentatively say, you know, we'll need to focus on terms of technology specific, right? We need to focus on some of the things that we have tried out in the desert and that were successful there. But then also economy wise, right? We're dealing with a completely different economy, right? And again, for that, it's almost like, let's get the basics, right? You know, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here today is like, how do we squeeze the last couple of pennies out of the arbitrage model? Whereas I think where your head is, is really more like, okay, well, how do I get as much power to the people as possible at a low price, but maybe it doesn't really have to be with the same levels of, I'm going to say like sophistication that this market is thinking about at this point. I'm not saying it shouldn't come, but that's where it has to go. So I'd love to connect afterward if you'd like, and we can talk some more about what some of the best thinking might be there. I've got an answer. 
Okay, so just on a whim, I did a Google search. Does Mozambique have hydroelectric? <laughs> and the answer was yes. Mozambique's electricity market is dominated by hydropower generation, largely utilized for exports to neighboring South Africa and Zimbabwe. Does that ring true? So if you've got hydroelectric. <laughs> 2,000 megawatts. Yeah, pumped hydro, man. Retrofit to pumped hydro. I mean, that'd probably be for long duration. You can't beat it. So that is a big possibility too. Just a suggestion. And it's a lot cheaper. Yes. We found at least at this point, it's much cheaper. Yeah, I think that'd be something to look into. Yes, sir? Well, you mentioned pumped hydro, I guess, right? The part of the battery storage in California at the point of What role is that going to play longer term? Is it just going to be a niche application or is it under school opportunity to do a lot more in the U.S.? Trying to get a sense for how widespread and large scale that can become. Yeah, the question was, how much pumped hydro do we have here? Have we explored all of it? We have not explored all of it. I know you're asking specifically outside of California, and I'm going to answer with California. So I apologize in advance, but I know that in California, just because BESS is still a lot more expensive, the thinking is, what are the opportunities to use some of the existing plants and add like a storage basin so that there is additional capacity using cheaper electricity to pump it up? So it's not fully utilized in California. And I have to say in the rest of the market, I'm not sure, but I'm going to venture out to say that there is still opportunity there. And I know I talk a lot about IAJA today, but there are specific grants out there for hydro improvements as part of that program. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Talk a little bit about uh, projections for market growth for energy storage. And I assume that your models predict that all the projects that are clogging the interconnection queues, a high percentage of them will be successful. But there's a competing industry, EV industry, that's looking for the same resources and they have equally as exponential growth projection. They also have a bunch of very greatly capitalized companies that can vertically integrate much easier than anybody on the power generation side. So to me, that's a competition. Do you look at it that way? Do you see a winner and a loser? Competition between the power industry and EVs. <laughs> I guess for, for those minerals, right? Basically, it's lithium. Yeah, I love the idea that we're trying to get away from oil and gas, which is a non-renewable resource by mining cobalt open pit. <laughs> I'm just saying. Go ahead, yeah. guys. Sorry. The way I see it, lithium is used for mobility, right? And it was developed for cell phones and laptops and EVs now. And the power industry is just taking advantage of that research and all that development and investment that was done in lithium. Power doesn't need mobility. Like grid-scale storage is just sitting there. So what I think is that when scarcity in lithium comes, like that competition is getting tighter, power storage is going to move away from lithium because it's going to become more expensive than just moving to something else like zinc, iron, or like sodium sulfur, right? Yeah. So that's the way I see it because it's not essential for storage storage for it to be light while it is for EVs and like all the mobility stuff. And I right? think even like the previous panel was talking about flow batteries. The only issue right now is the cost is almost like double of lithium ion. So if, if that cost curve comes down, that would definitely be a game changer. Right now, power and the battery storage and EVs are competing for a very small amount of lithium that's available. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was kind of bearing the lead a little bit in that last presentation. The idea was they are going to do a Gen 2, which should save a lot on the energy density and and the cost per kilowatt, right? So those kind of technologies, the closer they get in line with lithium, the more it starts to pencil, right? In the green? Yeah, so everyone has some other 
you told you could tell me your top two other millennium that you would be excited to see Great question. What your two favorite non-lithium storage technologies? <laughs> I may even that's a good question. Say something. Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I can go. And this is really of a personal interest, so don't take it as like advice or anything. But when I wrote my diploma thesis 25 years ago, I was working on hydrogen, and I've seen the ups and downs of it. And I feel like we're really at the critical mass of using hydrogen for long energy duration storage, not just here, but even more so in Europe. And even in the Middle East, a lot of interest and movement. So I think that though it has a lot of technical challenges and a lot of problems, I think we're now at a point where as a society, we're trying to overcome that and work it. So I double bet on hydrogen. Yeah. So there's also my two. Two votes for hydrogen. Andrew? I've looked at a few of these flow battery type opportunities and they are interesting, but obviously they're still very early stage. The costs come down, it could be a pretty significant game changer. When you talk about utility scale applications, is that something that you're going to use like if there's a big storm? There's all these technologies evolving, but something as simple and being in renewables, we tend to just focus on renewables. But one of the things that I noticed even when Hurricane Harvey hit or even the URI storm hit us in Texas, a lot of the people that had the natural gas lines with the gas generators, they were powered throughout the whole period. Obviously, we don't really want to talk about burning gas, but it is the cheapest form as of now, right? And I don't think, you know, moving forward, if we could find something that's a little bit cleaner or something, maybe that's where we gravitate towards, but we still have a pretty significant amount of resources of gas. I know I shouldn't be saying this as a renewables guy, but, you know, unfortunately- well, it is power gen. <laughs> it's, it's very efficient, you know, and Okay. So even though the renewables in Houston, I see a lot of where people are saying, oh, we're just going to get rid of natural gas. I go, well, I don't know. The reality is, is it's not going to go away anytime soon. Maybe in 50 years. I don't yeah. know. So flow and what else? Flow is really the main one. I flow. mean, I think. Yeah. New batteries. Uh, okay. I, my mind was going as well to gas. <laughs> Keeping it clean, just carbon capture, right? It's cheaper. It's there already. Like the infrastructure is there. Like we just need to retrofit to get the carbon capture and it's way flexible. It's not energy limited. So mine goes to gas as well. Carbon capture as a buffer, right? Yeah. Uh, My answer is pumped hydro and hydrogen. I think it's unsung and I think we're about to really learn a lot about it. So that's it. I'm Jay Downhower. Thank you so much to our panelists. Give them a big round of applause. And please stay with us. Thank you. That was Juan Ortega, Mark Skirlev, and Andrew Chen, my economic panelist from PowerGen in Orlando earlier this year. I was lucky enough to chair the entire energy storage track for PowerGen, and despite my goof with the Mardi Gras beads, PowerGen just announced I will be chairing the track again for PowerGen 24. I want to thank the entire PowerGen team for their support, as well as my panelists from today's episode. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at HostEnergy and Twitter at HostEnergyCast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 163. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how utilities are turning to one young company to get the word out on time-of-use energy savings. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.